And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18, we're looking at the entire chapter this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1038. I've entitled today's message, Come Out of Babylon. We'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider the text. Let's bow together. Our Lord, on this day we do wish to give you our thanks for beautiful weather, for eager worshipers, for the opportunity now to open your word and to study a portion of it together. And Lord, I pray that you would use today's text to inspire in us a desire for holiness, a desire for a distinctive testimony in this world, and that you would use this text to give us a, a greater anticipation for the arrival of the kingdom of righteousness, which your Son will inaugurate at his coming. Lord, this time is yours. We commit it to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word Babylon is used two ways in Scripture. Uh, sometimes it's used of a literal city that existed long ago. And other times it's a figurative description of that system of the world, which is an organized rebellion against God. That system which will one day culminate in a great empire headed by a figure that we know as Antichrist. And this is how it's used in Revelation in that figurative sense. The message of Revelation is that Babylon's days are numbered. Babylon's days are numbered. So far we've covered chapters 1 through 17 of this book, and we've learned how Babylon's end will come. We saw that first... Christ will appear to remove his church by resurrection and translation. That was in chapter 3, fulfilling a promise that Jesus himself made in John chapter 14. Then, subsequent to that, Christ will begin pouring out his righteous judgments on the world of unbelief. These judgments will extend over a period of seven years, and they will come in waves of seven. First, there will be seven seal judgments, and then seven trumpet judgments, and then Seven bull judgments. And the repetition of the number seven is signifying to us that these will be Christ's perfect or complete judgments on this unregenerate world system. These judgments will bring an end to the reign of Babylon, thus clearing the way for the kingdom of Christ. And today we're in chapter 18. This chapter brings the entire narrative of these judgments to a close. This whole coming tribulation period finally comes to an end today. After this chapter, the book will pivot to the inauguration of Christ's kingdom on earth. And what we have in Revelation chapter 18 is one final definitive declaration that Babylon is coming to an end. We have a final and definitive reminder of why Babylon must come to an end. 
And then we have a final call to action for the people of God. So let's look at this passage together. We'll begin with verses 1 and 2. Again, the Apostle John is writing. Here's what he says. He says, After this, that is, after these seven bowl judgments, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice. And here's the message of this new angel. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. So here is that final definitive pronouncement on Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. This means that Babylon has no future. That whole godless system organized against God, it has been marked out for judgment. And just to make sure that we entertain no doubts about that fact, the angel repeats the statement, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. You'll also notice how the statement is put in the past tense. This is a common feature in the Bible's prophetic literature. It's called a proleptic aorist. It means that this event is so certain to occur that the author can speak of it as if it has already happened. And then if all of that wasn't enough to convince us, he even describes what the aftermath of God's judgments on Babylon will be. That's in the second part of verse 2. It says, And she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. The idea here is that when God is through with Babylon, her destruction will be so complete, there'll be nothing left. She'll be a ghost town, a haunt for demons, a place where unclean beasts can dwell but no, no unregenerate human beings. And so, friends, we can make no mistake about it. Babylon is coming to an end. We would all do well to allow that very sobering truth to sink down deeply into our souls. Babylon is coming to an end. Every time you go to the grocery store, Every time you go to the gas station to fill up your car, every time you walk down Main Street and you see all the shops, every time you open up the newspaper and you're reading the day's headlines, it would do well for all of us to look at all that is around us and say to ourselves, this entire system as it exists today, this whole thing is coming to an end. God has decreed a day when it will all come crashing down. The remainder of this chapter explains why this must be. In short, it's because Babylon has become irredeemably corrupt. Look at verse 5 with me. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit in this chapter. Verse 5 says, For her sins are heaped as high as heaven. As high as heaven. Now, who could have imagined that that seemingly innocent act of taking a bite from a forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden would end in this? But indeed, it will. That one little act of eating the forbidden fruit, it introduced the principle of sin in the world. And that sin has taken hold of every human heart. 
and it has spread like gangrene through the whole world. One day it will embody itself in an anti-Christ system, governmental, economic, religious system, which will even seek to wage war against the risen Christ. That one little act in the garden will culminate in this. And so God has determined that Babylon, the whole thing, must come to an end. Verses 3 and following, we have a listing of Babylon's sins, just so that we understand her true corrupt nature. First, we learn that Babylon is immoral. Look at the first part of verse 3. It says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. This thought is repeated in the first part of verse 9. It says, And the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. Now, back in the previous chapter, we learned that, that immorality can be used as a figure of speech for false worship. Because this is how God looks at false worship. God, God created us. He made us for a relationship with himself. But we turn our back on him. We give all of our affection, all of our attention to something else, a, a false god. God looks at that as an act of infidelity. That could be what's in mind here, or it could be literal immorality that he has in mind here. That Babylon, the world, has become rampant with physical immorality, which God did not create the world for. Or maybe he has both ideas in mind, especially in the ancient world. It was common for false worship to be paired with immorality. In fact, to worship your false god, you would engage in immoral acts. Maybe it's all in view here. And so we just leave it at this, that Babylon, the whole system of the unregenerate world, has become saturated, absolutely saturated with immoral acts. Babylon isn't just immoral, though. She's also proud. Look at verse 7. It begins, she has glorified herself. It means Babylon cares nothing for the glory of God. Instead, she labors day in and day out to make a name for herself, to make herself appear great. And in so doing, she robs God of the glory that he is due. She appropriates it for herself. She is immoral. She is proud. Babylon is also self-indulgent. Look at the second part of verse 3. It says, The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then the middle of verse 7 repeats it. She has lived in luxury. And then end of verse 9, she has lived in luxury again. It's obvious here that Babylon values ostentatious displays of wealth. The thing that, that really captures Babylon's heart is the acquisition of stuff. Stuff that will bring her pleasure, stuff that will bring her comfort, stuff that will elevate her status in the world. She just wants to accumulate things. She values outward show over inner virtue. Babylon is immoral. Babylon is proud. Babylon is self-indulgent. And end of verse 7, Babylon is self-assured. 
Babylon says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. This this system of the world, it says to itself, I am rich, I am powerful, I am the captain of my own fate, I am the master of my own destiny, no one can stand against me. I am invincible, so assured of herself. What's more, Babylon is also insatiable, insatiable in its greed. Look at verses 11 through 13 with me. It says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Look at the cargo coming into Babylon. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble. Verse 13, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and even slaves. And it says that is human souls, even trafficking in human souls. Such is the greed of Babylon that she will deny herself nothing, nothing that will bring her wealth and comfort and pleasure and power. The idea is repeated in verse 16. It says, And alas, alas for the great city that has clothed, was clothed in fine linen, in purple, in scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls. And then down in verse 22, the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and, and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. Craftsmen of any craft, the sound of the mill. You see, Babylon is just this engine of economic activity. It's all geared toward the production of luxuries to make Babylon feel powerful and rich and beautiful. Insatiable greed. In fact, verse 14 says that all of these things, these are the fruits for which Babylon longed. Babylon's heart has been captured with the love of these things. This is all that Babylon cares for. That original sin in the Garden of Eden, that that forbidden fruit which looked good to eat, which looked like it would make one wise, which would make one as God, it's all embodied here, isn't it, in Babylon. The desire for pleasure the desire to be equal to God, the desire to be powerful, the desire to be thought wise. One sin reaping a harvest of sins, a harvest that heaps to the very heavens. But this is what's captured the heart of our world, my friends. And it will continue to capture it right to the very end. Babylon has become immoral. She has become proud. She's become self-indulgent. She's become insatiable in her greed. And, verse 24, she's become violent. Verse 24 reads, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. So Babylon has has embraced the culture of death. 
She's especially become vicious toward the people of God, persecuting them without mercy all over the world, spilling their blood in the streets. And why? Simply because the people of God stand in contrast to her. They're an affront to her. And she will not abide them in her presence. And so she cuts the people of God down. But then it generalizes to say, all who have been slain on the earth, all of those who have died of violence, they rest at Babylon's feet. She is a lover of violence. My friends, when God sent His Son Jesus into the world, He did it to provide an all-sufficient atonement for sinners. And that's what the cross of Christ is all about. On the cross, our Lord Jesus voluntarily took upon himself the full weight of all of God's judgment on all of the sins of all of the people who would ever repent and trust in him. He died so that their mountain of sin could be cast into the sea, gone forever, so their slate could be wiped clean, they could be forgiven, even have a righteous standing with him, so they could be reconciled to him. And you understand that there is no sin so heinous or no amount of sin so numerous that it's beyond the ability of the atonement to cover. And that's why Isaiah 118 says, Though your sins be like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they can become like wool. The trouble with Babylon, this unregenerate system now dominating the world, is that it doesn't want God, or His Son, or that all-sufficient atonement. It doesn't want His righteousness. It doesn't want repentance. It doesn't want faith in God through Christ. It doesn't want any of it. What has captured its heart is not the thirst for righteousness. It's not the desire to know and love and glorify God. What has captured Babylon is the love of power and wealth and comfort and pleasure and bloodlust. These are the things that have captured Babylon. And so that's why her time must come to an end. Not because she has sinned, but because she has sinned without repentance. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, that great mountain of sin, it is either covered by Christ or it is borne by yourself. Babylon, that great system, has chosen to bear it herself, and so God has decreed that she shall come to an end. And every part of Babylon must be swept away swept away to make room for a kingdom of righteousness which Christ himself will rule. And friends, when that day finally comes, it will happen so quickly. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. A single day. And then verse 17. For in a single hour... All this wealth has been laid waste. And then verse 19, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. In a single hour, she has been laid waste. 
See, God has decreed a day in which Babylon will fall, and it will happen that moment that Christ descends to take his throne, to start to inaugurate his kingdom on the earth. And it will be as easy for him to do as breathing is to us. He's just going to speak, and in a moment, in a moment, all of Babylon and all that she represents will be wiped away, and none will stand but him. It'll happen that fast. And it'll be total, total. Look at verse 2 again. This description of the aftermath of God's judgments on Babylon. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. The idea is that when God is through with her, there will be nothing there, wiped away. She'll be a ghost town, nothing left. And then verse 8. Death and mourning and famine shall be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Second part of verse 11. No one buys their cargo anymore. First part of verse 17. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19. They threw dust on their heads and wept and Mourn crying out, the great city where all who had ships and sea grew rich by her wealth. In a single hour, she has been laid waste. Second part of verse 21, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Do you hear just the intense language repeated over and over in the chapter? Babylon will be made a haunt, she'll be made desolate, she'll be burned up, she'll be laid waste, she'll be thrown down. There's no missing it. There will be nothing left of her. Christ will come. He will bring an end to all of Babylon. See, friends, Christ is not impressed with Babylon's gold and silver and oils and spices because he knows the true spiritual state of Babylon. He knows that outside of this powerful, wealthy facade, there lurks abominations too great for us to imagine. Do you remember the prior chapter where we saw Babylon personified as this woman and she was so beautiful, but then we looked deeper, we looked inside the cup and we saw the the horrors that were inside. That is Babylon. Christ knows her true nature. He sees her immorality and pride, her self-indulgence and self-assurance, her greed and her violence. When he looks at Babylon, he sees a whole world system that has rejected everything that he stands for and one that cannot be allowed to endure forever. And so he is determined that his own kingdom must, must take her place. This is the end of Babylon Friends, in light of this, there's only one thing for the people of God to do. It's found in verse 4. We must come out of Babylon. Look at the verse with me. It says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. In light of what Babylon is, what she stands for, what her end is going to be, only one thing to do. Come out. Get out of her. The word could also be translated withdraw from her. Separate yourself from her or make a decisive break with Babylon. 
This is an instruction very common in the scriptures. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, you remember when God called Abraham father of the Jewish people? What did he say to Abraham? He said, Abraham, you must first come out of the land of your fathers. Come out of Ur, come out of that idolatry, come out of that immorality, come out of all of it. Follow me to a new land where I will lead you. Then in Numbers chapter 16, this chapter gives us the end of of Korah's rebellion. Korah was an Israelite, tried to lead a, a group of men against Moses, God's prophet. Listen to the instructions that were given regarding Korah and his followers. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from them. Say to the congregation of Israel, Get away from the dwelling of Korah. And so Moses urged them, saying, Depart, please, depart from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs. See, pull away, separate yourself from Korah and his men. Or Isaiah 52, verse 11, words to the Jewish exiles. It says, Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. The theme continues in the, Old, in the New Testament scriptures. In fact, the, the New Testament word for church means a called out assembly. The church is a group of people who have pulled out of the world, withdrawn from Babylon, and they become a new people for God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 gives us the rationale for this. It says, For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so the command is repeated, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Now he quotes from Isaiah, Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Now, friends, here at the end of our Bibles, as we see the transition from the present age to the age to come, we find the same command. My people, come out of Babylon. Now, here in chapter 18, I believe the command to come out may include a a literal instruction to physically withdraw from the centers of Babylon's power. This would accord well with Jesus' teachings about the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down and take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Okay, so this could involve a literal, okay, the people of God in this Great Tribulation time to literally get out of the population centers, go out to the wilderness, be safe from the judgment that is coming. But I think the larger point of the instruction here, the point that is established from Genesis 2 Revelation, is this one, that God's redeemed people must view themselves as a special people, as a called-out people, and they must make a break with the world around them, and they must live holy for God. Friends, I think this is where the American church so often fails. I think... Generally speaking, the American church does not look at Babylon, which is to say the the world dominated by 
the unregenerate and their values and their beliefs, I do not think that the American church on the whole looks at Babylon the way that God looks at it. I don't think they look at Babylon and see it the way God does. I think most of the time the American church sees Babylon the way she sees herself. They see power and wealth and beauty and influence. And they find her very, very tempting. I think too often the American church has been enamored with what Babylon has to offer. I think that if you were to look at the typical American Christian, you would have a hard time seeing any difference at all between that professing Christian and the non-believer next to them. In terms of the motives that govern their behaviors, in terms of the, the goals in life they are striving toward, in terms of the value that they place on things like prestigious job titles and the acquisition of power and possessions, the desire for wealth and, and popularity, I don't think you would see much difference. And I think all too often the American church has desired the approval of Babylon more than the approval of God. I think she fears Babylon more than she fears God, which is why she is constantly making concessions to Babylon, adjusting her confessions of faith, adjusting her lifestyle expectations, watering down the demands of discipleship, trying desperately to look like the world because she fears Babylon's displeasure more than she fears God. Friends, we must, we must not be like this. We must make a decisive break with all that Babylon stands for. We must learn to look at Babylon the way that God looks at it. Yes, maybe an attractive facade, but on the inside, sins heaped to the highest heavens. Values that stand in direct conflict with all of the values that God would have for us. A life in accord with errant values. We must see it the way that God sees it. A system that will one day come to an end. And seeing it, we must determine that we will build a gospel counterculture. A gospel counterculture. We will remain in this world because that is what God has for us, to be in the world. But we will determine not to be of this world. The world is built on a foundation of vain philosophies. We will determine to be built on the foundation of Scripture. The world is built to glorify itself. We will aim at the glory of God. Babylon is empowered by its greed, by its bloodlust. We will be empowered by the grace of God in Christ. Babylon is driven by unbelief and vice. We will be driven by faith and virtue. Friends, we must determine that we will not be a mirror of the surrounding culture, but that we will stand in bold contrast to the culture. And we will determine to work to call others out of Babylon. We will not try to be like Babylon. We will ask others to leave it and to come to us. 
to embrace the gospel counterculture, to stand as a bold testimony that there is a better way to live, that God has something else for us, to model a culture of life and not a culture of death, culture of service, not a culture of violence, culture of virtue, not a culture of immorality. Because we understand, middle of verse 4, that continued association with Babylon would mean participation in her sins. You see, if we're not coming out of Babylon to be a distinctive gospel counterculture, that means we've chosen to stay in Babylon and to embrace her values. It's to become a participant in the sins that are going to bring her to judgment. Therefore, continued association would mean sharing in her judgment. Ultimately, it would mean we didn't know Christ at all. If we love what Babylon loves, value what she values, if we do what Babylon does, we are of Babylon, not of Christ. So friends, we who know Christ with saving faith, we must come out of Babylon. There must be a bold contrast between Babylon and us. It must be evident to the world that there is a culture for Babylon and there is a counterculture for gospel people. And we must commit ourselves to this faithfulness right to the very end. So friends, as we come to a close this morning, let me ask you, where is your heart? Is it with Christ or is it with Babylon? If I were to take just the average person off the street and ask them about you, would that person say, oh yes, this is one of us? Or would they say, no, this person is not of us. This person is of Christ. Would it be evident that there is a distinction there? Do you love life in Babylon? Or do you long for the kingdom to come? Kingdom which will be ruled by God's Son. Which side are you on? My friends, I plead with you, if you're a believer in Christ, come out of Babylon. Now let's pray together. Our Lord, as we look at this very sobering chapter of Revelation and we see that the end of Babylon has been decreed, the day will come when she will be no more, and it's because, because her sins are heaped as high as heaven. And there has been no repentance There's been no desire for the freedom that comes with the gospel of Christ. Lord, would you help us to be a special people, a called out people? Would you help us to live as saints, holy ones? Would you help us to fearlessly embody a gospel counterculture, giving the world an alternative? Would you help us to keep our message distinct? Would you help us to keep our way of life distinct from the world? And Lord, would you use us to draw many people to faith in your Son? Help us, Lord, to live in the beauty of holiness and to be glorified in us. Lord, help us, every one of us struggles with the vices of our old lives. Help us to have victory over those because we want to be like you. We want to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.